Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a, a great show for you today. We have Elizabeth Holtzman coming up shortly. But first, we want to thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, and we'll read a few next time. And here's some recent emails from Paul Wilhelms. Thanks for some amazing shows, and I look forward to many more. Thank you, Paul. Leslie Aqua, thank you for this. Realized I hadn't seen Brooklyn Bridge. This is the Ken Burns in interview she's referring to. Uh, I hadn't seen Brooklyn Bridge, so I can watch it with my PBS streaming service. Also, signed up for HBO so I can watch Adrian. Adrian is the documentary I directed and produced about my late wife, Adrian Shelley, uh, actor and filmmaker most known for Waitress. Catherine Hamilton. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having Paul Bagala on. I love your Dylan songs. You know, we had a little concert a couple of weeks ago. I think Trump opened Pandora's box just as Mr. Bagala said. Also, Chris Christie is the only Republican with any guts. I'm hoping he does not run. Go, Joe Biden. Please run again. Thank you, Andy. Mike King, our favorite listener. Mike King. Hello there, Mike. Andy, no, you did not make an utter fool of yourself. And you did, Dylan, a total justice. FYI, Lay Lady Lay is my absolute favorite of all of his songs. Thank you again, Mike. Thank all of you for listening and for writing. All right, let's get to our two big things. Fox Dominion, the settlement. I don't know what to make of this. I think liberals were hoping for what the media was pushing, which was a narrative that everyone was going to get up there and have to admit to lying. We were going to hear mm -hmm. Laura Ingram go, oh, my God, I lied. And we're going to hear, you know, all of them say it. And I guess that really, I mean, I, I admit that I really wanted that. And I thought, oh, my God, that'll be amazing. But when I spoke to people who had cooler heads and knew what they were talking about, they were like, they're going to settle. Yeah, the question is whether they should have settled before Discovery and all these texts and emails came out, which were highly incriminating. But, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know. Jen, what do you... I feel without an apology, without the accountability, Fox News listeners don't really know that there was a problem. Yeah. And so that's unsatisfactory to me. I kind of agree overall that that apology really would have made it all worthwhile in the ways that we libtards want. I mean, like we want the magus to sit at home going, oh my God, I've been duped. I think eventually this helps get some of them there. And I do think uh, I do think that it does uh, pave the way for future victories for like Smartmatic. I think the OANs and Newsmaxes ha have to be very, very careful because they don't have Murdoch's deep pockets. So I do think it does help. 787 million point seven, five yeah it's <laughs> that's not any, a number to sneeze at that's a that's a huge amount even for a company like fox sure yeah but this is where fox actually is the winner in this i know we're going to talk about winners and losers later but i think the real reason they're a winner if you remember back when peter Thiel sort of destroyed gawker and uh nick denton and basically fox's news competitors are totally effed on this because they don't have any deep pockets and basically they could be put out of business this way. And Fox in the end is going to, is going to be there. And we know it didn't hurt them too much because their stock didn't even drop after they just got a $700 million payout, which I mean, most companies, if you had to pay almost 
three quarters of a billion dollars, like, oh my God, the stock has got to drop. Mm-hmm. That's really a good point. And, you know, as long as their audience remains faithful, that's the most important thing. This is just a drop in the bucket. Yeah. I mean, the, the flip side to all this is that, like Trump famously said, he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue. And as I always like to joke, his fans and supporters would scream that none deserved it. Right. You know, or that baby deserved it. So I think even if Tucker Carlson looked them straight in the eye and said, I lied. We all lied. We were wrong. They'd walk away going, oh, the deep state made him say that. 100%. So it doesn't, that's where I go back to saying, you know what, this this was a huge victory for not just Dominion voting systems. Staple was, Street Capital. What was that? Staple Street Capital owns 38% of Dominion. It's a oh. hedge fund. Yeah, it was a huge, huge win for Dominion and its friends. Uh, huge win for democracy. I think it was a huge win for truth and reality. And I think it does, it does chip away at this problem. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, what everyone wanted, but it, I think it was a good outcome, not the best, but a good outcome. But And in the long run, I mean, you know, f- from Dominion's point of view, you never really know what's going to happen in a defamation lawsuit, right? right? You just need Very to- hard to prove. Right. Very hard to prove. I mean, they, even if they had won, the chances of them getting this amount of money is so negligible. I mean, it's seven times what their value is. And especially yeah. on appeal. The interesting thing about this case is that there were two elements the Dominion had to prove. One was that the stuff was a lie, and two, that there was intentional malice to spread that lie, Mm -hmm. knowing it was a lie. And what was interesting is that the judge had ruled early on that Dominion doesn't even need to prove that these were lies. Like, they're so egregious. So it was like the judge handed them this, like, halfway uh, victory, and a lot of legal analysts said hands down dominion would win is probably why fox the end uh settled you know when you're ever involved in a lawsuit um and it drags on sometimes the lawyers will say to you someone has to bleed before it settles Mm -hmm. literally like there has to be blood on the floor and that's what i think this this came came to yeah i mean i think we also saw some incredible lawyering which uh when the judge dismissed the jury and said it was settled he actually said this was the best lawyering he had ever seen on the bench. Yeah, on both sides. No, I think it, it it's it'll go down in history on many levels as a a, a big win uh, and and a very important precedent setting case. The second big thing of the week is uh, GOP weapon weaponization of of Congress. Uh, little Jim Jacketless Jordan brought his <laughs> his field hearing to New York <laughs> to to get to the bottom of what's going on with crime in New York City and Alvin Bragg and his, you know, he's just, you know, because Alvin Bragg, we all know, can't do more than one thing at a time. Impossible. Like it's, it's impossible to fight crime in New York and prosecute Donald Trump. So, of course, anyone with a brain, even a half a brain, knows that if you prosecute and investigate Donald Trump, that means criminals are just running rampant in New York. I'm guessing all of his ADAs, that's all they're working on, nothing else. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's it's incredible. And Jim Jordan, thank God, is trying to get to the bottom of this. I mean, and anyone who says that this, you know, it's coincidental that Bragg also happens to be investigating Trump, like, you know, it, no, it has nothing to do with Trump. It has nothing to do with the investigation. You know, forget the fact that Jordan and his cronies for how long have been yam- yammering about crime in San Francisco and Chicago. I mean, they didn't go there, but just happened to decide that New York is more well, important 
two weeks after the indictment of Trump. Again, no coincidence at all. No coincidence at all. Frankly, I'm surprised that they got out of New York in one piece. I, I, I'm shocked. You know, how, how did they manage to do that? It's so scary there. Yeah. No, there was, a, there, was a, there was many, many riots this week around the, the, the field hearing, uh, which, by the way, had about as many people as there were Trump supporters outside the courthouse when he was indicted. So I think there was maybe 40 people in the room, 39 of which were media. So, and Jim Jordan was the other one. And he's going to keep doing this. Obviously, he's subpoenaed Pomerantz, and I'm sure you want to talk about that. And uh, right now, there's a stay by the second appellate court, but it's a good chance Pomerantz is going to have to testify. I don't really understand why Jim Jordan wants to hear from Pomerantz, because this is a former assistant to Bragg who left and wrote a book. It's grandstanding. That's all it is. But I mean, I don't understand why he wants to hear from him, because Pomerantz thinks that Trump commits a crime a day. And so if he's up there on the stand, what is he going to say that's going to be good for Jim Jordan? The thing that ultimately pisses me off more than anything is just how masterful the Republicans are at projection. That's what they do. (laughs) It's like, we are going to totally weaponize Congress, wink, wink, and accuse Democrats of weaponizing Congress. Like, Trump does it. They all do it. They just do, they literally do everything they, they accuse Democrats of doing. And so the irony of Jim Jordan heading the Judiciary Committee conducting a hearing on the weaponization of Congress or the government, when that's literally what this whole committee is doing, is just preposterous. All right, winners and losers. (coughs) My winners are the uh, Oklahoma Community Newspaper, the McCurtain Gazette News, and its publisher, Bruce Willingham, for publishing the transcript of a recording that revealed that the local sheriff wanted to kill him and other journalists and hang black people. My losers are all the prominent election deniers who are currently being sued by Dominion and Smartmatic. And I'm looking at you, Mike Lindell and Rudy Giuliani. Those are good, Maddie. My winner, unlikely bipartisanship bedmates. The Mission Democracy PAC will challenge far-right members of Congress in their often deep-red home districts running ads and messaging campaigns that accuse the politicians of holding anti-democratic and extreme positions. Loser. Senseless gun violence. Young people just living out their daily lives, being shot for being in the wrong place at the wrong time again and again and again. My winner, Dominion Voting Systems. May not have been the 100% outcome we wanted, but the entire world now knows they lied. My loser, Ron DeSantis whose I'm a little fascist asshole tour, fresh off its six-week abortion ban last week, continued this week with his threat to build a prison next to Disney World, and then the ban of discussions of gender identity in schools. All right, that gets us to our weekly rant. I like to call him Rhonda Sanders because his perverse obsession with trans women, drag queens, and vaginas must mean that deep down he secretly desires to be a woman, even though he still identifies as a male asshole. Repressed sexuality aside, it's becoming abundantly clear through his relentless and, quite frankly, self-destructive attacks on Disney, Florida's largest and certainly most beloved employer, by the way, that he is woefully unfit to ever serve as president. 
Let's consider his most glaring personality flaws. He's incredibly small, petty, insecure, thin-skinned, selfish, self-consumed, vindictive, bigoted, angry, hateful, and cruel. Not what I would consider desirable presidential assets. In fact, imagine this angry little dictator trying to negotiate in a bipartisan fashion with a Democratic-led Congress. Imagine him addressing America's intense polarization and tribalism. Imagine him on the world stage with diplomacy, dealing with our allies, or worse, handling delicate, tense, and potentially violent situations with our enemies. But most of all, DeSantis is a coward, a weak, feckless, pathetic coward who, like most bullies, only picks on those significantly weaker than he is, which is why it's virtually impossible to imagine him having the balls to take on the biggest bully of all, Donald Trump. Especially given his awful momentum, his once glistening star is fading, his, he's losing key endorsements from Florida legislators and big donors. His polls are cratering, and Trump and his cronies have been successfully hammer, hammering him over his epic Disney fail, while also accusing him of supporting cuts to Social Security and Medicare and eating chocolate pudding with three fingers. Which is why I continue to predict, as I have for many months now, that DeSantis will not run for president. This coward knows a losing fight when he sees one. That brings us to our guest today, Elizabeth Holtzman. She is an attorney, writer, author, TV commentator, and former politician. She served for nearly three decades in government, including 20 years as an elected official. She was the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, a record she held for 42 years, and subsequently became the first woman elected Brooklyn District Attorney. She was also the first and only woman to be elected controller of New York City. During her four terms in Congress, she captured national attention for her role on the House Judiciary Committee, where she voted to impeach President Richard Nixon. She's a champion of women's rights, authoring many laws, including extending the deadline for ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment, the Rape Privacy Act, and in exposing the U.S. government's inaction on Nazi war criminals living in America. She forced the Justice Department to create a special Nazi hunting unit that won worldwide acclaim. Elizabeth, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I want to start with your most recent news. You ran again for Congress in 2022, last fall. You have been in public service most of your adult career. And uh, I'm curious, what was the decision to run again? Some people were a little critical. There was an ageist thing, in my opinion. I mean, I'm 63, and I'm in the best physical and mental shape of my life. My red flags go up when people get criticized pretty much solely on the basis of age. But I want to know, despite that criticism, what motivated you to run again after all this time? What motivated me was that uh, the decision that came out, the draft decision on abortion that Judge Alito, Justice Alito, released, and that infuriated me. And uh, I was asked to make some speeches at some rallies. And there I was uh, rallying the crowd and getting great response. And I was really angry. And I said, we need people in Congress who are going to do something about this. But I didn't think about running. There was no opportunity. It was the farthest thing from my mind. And then they had this crazy redistricting in New York. And I was my house is right in the center of that district. Yeah, mine too. And I said, <laughs> I said, I know this job and I have some 
creative ideas and I'm angry and I can do it. I can hit the ground running and I can do it. The job is not just about taking Trump down and preserving our democracy. The job is also about preserving our rights, women's rights, um, everyone's rights. And it's about improving the lot of people in this country, whether it's environmental or in terms of public transportation or housing. And I've done all those things. Mm -hmm. I've done it in many different capacities. But particularly what irritated me was, in fact, what I thought was the Democrats' reluctance to take on the Supreme Court. And I find that that's still the case. And it was it was annoying to me and dismaying to me then, and it's dismaying to me now. I mean, everyone's saying, John Roberts, you take on the investigation of Clarence Thomas. Well, he's not going to do that. There's no way he's going to do that, to live with this man uh, on the court, and he's not going to do that. It's very hard to investigate yourself, and it's very hard to investigate the colleagues that you work with all the time. Congress has, has not lifted a finger to look at Clarence Thomas. Why do you and, think, because that's one of the things I was going to ask and, you. And they haven't taken, lifted a finger to look at Brett Kavanaugh. They never finished his investigation. And frankly, they never finished the, the investigation of Clarence Thomas. It's not just his, his refusal to fill out financial forms, his contempt for ethics laws. It's just the way he has the same contempt for the Constitution. He's not, he's above the law. Well, they, the Congress never finished the investigation of him and his claims that he never engaged in sexual harassment. There were women who were never questioned under oath by that committee in public. I know that because one came to my, called my office to talk about it. And we, we tried to get the committee to talk to her and they refused. So I know they never finished the job then. You have, we have now a Supreme Court that's going to decide about whether Americans all over the country can use the, the abortion pill. And the fact of the matter is that you've got at least two judges on that court, three judges whose legitimacy on the court is questionable. Right. Now, how can this be? And where are the Democrats? Yeah. You hear the anger in my yeah, voice. No, no, I, what got me going was, and still had me going. I was literally going to say for everyone out there who's listening, if you have no idea why Elizabeth Holtzman ran for Congress last year, you just heard why. You came in six, although you got six times the amount of votes as Bill de Blasio, who was the former and much younger New York City mayor. So your candidacy certainly had legitimacy, but I think it did raise a very important ageism question. We saw recently on CNN, Don Lemon took heat because he said a 50-year-old woman is basically past her prime. The key is with people like us who are in our 60s, 70s, 80s, you ran for Congress when you were 80 years old. You don't think of yourself that age. Like, I don't see myself as a 63-year-old man. I think and feel like I did 40 years ago. I don't feel limited by my age. So it's easy for someone closer to your age to understand what you were thinking. You were just seeing yourself as a woman who's accomplished, who is successful, who's resourceful, who knows how to get shit done. You're angry. You're fired up. Those are all great qualities to have in a congressperson. You don't see the limitations of your age the way other people look at age, and it's wrong for them to do that. And that's, of course, kind of the very definition of ageism. It's limiting someone's ability to do something solely because of their age. But the point is that people sometimes like to operate on stereotypes, and that's wrong. Uh, you could be a young person 
and not have the intelligence or the sense. I mean, look at George Santa, a liar. God only knows what else. I mean, so let's be real. Sure, there are people at 80 or 81 or 85 mm -hmm. who can't do the job in order to be, you know, sitting. Maybe they can't even read a book. Okay, we understand their limitations of age, but they're also benefits of age the maturity the wisdom the sure. experience you bring that's you don't have that when you're 31 i know that yeah. i mean i was in congress when i was 31 i was the youngest woman when, at the time i was elected yeah so i hope people begin to think about those stereotypes because the population is aging we are more active when we're older both my grandparents died in their you know early or mid 60s it would have been inconceivable for someone to live as long as I am and and, um, and and still with my marbles. So I think that the real question is to always to evaluate a person on the basis of his or her qualities, not on the basis of their color, their age, mm -hmm. their height, their weight. Well, you've, you've spent a career fighting gender. for that. You know, the interesting thing is, I think, with ageism today in politics, it's very partisan. You hear about all the attacks on Nancy Pelosi for her age. Look what's happening with Dianne Feinstein. Joe Biden is too old. Trump people will say Biden's too old, but yet Trump is the same age basically as Biden. McConnell, right? This is a guy who's been missing for the last couple of months because unfortunately he had a fall. And, and you know, the difference between Democrats and Republicans is we don't make fun of Republicans who fall down and hurt themselves and get hospitalized and have to take off like the way they're attacking John Fetterman. But it seems the ageism seems to come more from the right and a little bit from like the younger progressives who feel like, you well, know. Well, the ageism, I don't know that it's partisan. I think it's still, unfortunately, something that's not recognized. People are not ashamed to say he's too old for the job. People are ashamed. They know they shouldn't be saying he or she is the wrong color for the job or right. a woman can't hold the job. They wouldn't say that you know, on a microphone that everybody could hear. So I think people don't realize that ageism exists and that it's a bigoted thing to say someone is too old for the job. They may be, but you have to know more about them than just their age. Speaking of age, when you were 30 and entered Congress, one thing, one thing I, I, I been doing some research on you, you, when the Watergate burglary occurred, there was also at around the same time a burglary of your campaign headquarters. Right. And unlike the Watergate burglary, some of your staffers ended up in the hospital. Talk yeah, one. What, what <laughs> happened there? Well, we still don't know what happened. But on Saturday night, just before the primary election, some thugs broke into our campaign headquarters, which, of course, was open late because right before the primary, you're doing a lot of intensive campaigning. They broke into the campaign. They beat up my campaign manager and fled. Uh, he went to the hospital. Luckily, the injuries were pretty superficial. So mm -hmm. that was good. And we kept going. But it meant that I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the Watergate break-in right. at the same time. Well, I, I don't think at that time many people I, I paid to attention pay. to the Watergate break-in itself, you know, <laughs> right. except maybe Woodward and Bernstein. And you did, you were sort of dragged reluctantly into the Judiciary Committee. Uh, you said your predecessor had been on it for like 50 years and you just felt you needed to do something else. But then you got on that committee and then all of a sudden history dropped in your lap and you were an integral part of drafting the impeachment articles and voting for impeachment of Nixon. 
that must have been a crazy time. But I, I don't want to make you rehash that because I'm sure you've said this stuff a thousand times. But I'm more interested in your perspective because it's rare to get someone's perspective like yours. What are the key differences like when you were in Congress then going after Nixon, who was corrupt, versus what you see today with Congress and the Justice Department and going after Trump and his corruption? The di differences between the House then, the House now, and the differences in Nixon and Trump himself? Well, I always put it this way. I think that the that all the Republicans were not as partisan as they seem to be today. Mm -hmm. They were, it's not to say they weren't partisan. When they started out, I think probably every single Republican was a Nixon supporter, every single one of them. But they allowed themselves to be influenced by the facts. Hmm. And the way in which the facts were presented was the same for every member of the committee. We had to sit, I mean, it was like kindergarten, we had to, all the members of the committee sat behind closed doors and the, our chief counsel read to us statements of fact. And we had the opportunity to challenge those statements. You know, Nixon did this, his chief of staff did that. If you didn't challenge it at that point, you couldn't come back and say later on, oh, I didn't know what was happening because it was right in front of you. And we all had the same facts. And a big percentage of the Republicans, about 30% of them, were influenced by the facts, which were overwhelming, even before the smoking gun tape came out. And we also had three Southern Democrats whose districts were at least as pro-Nixon as the Republicans. So all of them supported it. They kept, and it was, for these people, it was very courageous. It was not, um, you know, simply, I, I see the facts and yeah, I know Nixon um, engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors and so forth. I think they knew that their election re-elections were on the line, but they had immense courage. It wasn't a courageous act for me because I knew that mine was a Democratic district and I would be okay. But still, I, I remember voting for Nixon's impeachment, and it was one of the most unpleasant things I ever had to do in my life because as much as I really uh, opposed his policies, disagreed with many of his programs, he, he was still my president, and I didn't want to see my president have to be voted as someone who engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors. I was, I was really saddened by that. Mm. And, uh, but the fact of the matter is I did a lot of research in the Constitution. I went to Harvard Law School, but they never taught us about impeachment at Harvard Law School. That was not a subject matter because no one had looked at it for 100 years. Right. Andrew Johnson. Johnson. Mm. <laughs> was the first and and we thought i guess they hoped at that point the last but the framers understood that there would be presidents who would abuse the power of their office and they didn't know whether their names were going to be nixon or trump but they knew they'd be there and they created a mechanism and i felt also very uh privileged at that point because i said you know to be to be sitting on this because both my parents were immigrants. We came to this country. They both came with nothing. They built a life, a life for themselves and for me and my brother. And here we were, here I was being given the enormous responsibility of sitting in judgment on the president of the United States. And I tried to do it as honorably as I could. I did my homework. What you're saying, though, is that 
truth, facts, reality, country over party, which existed then, don't exist anymore. Well, when did it get also, so tribal? Uh, and, and when did the Republican Party lose its ability to just reason and be rational? Well, I, I, I want to make a different point from what you're saying. I don't, what I think the other thing that was very important, which was not done in this impeachment, in the Trump impeachment, was that the chair of the Judiciary Committee wasn't run from the Speaker's office, the impeachment. It was run by the Democrats and the chair of the Judiciary Committee. The chair of the committee made enormous efforts to reach out to the Republicans. When he first started, he picked a Republican counsel for the Democrats, for the whole committee. And the Republicans picked the Republican counsel. So guess what? We had two Republican counsels. Reaching out in that way sent a very important message. We're going to do this in a not in a partisan fashion. We're going to reach out. And you know when the Republicans wanted witnesses and when when they wanted things that were really maybe they weren't 100% reasonable but they were certainly manageable for example and he gave in to them the chair of the committee so when the republicans wanted live witnesses at our hearings they insisted on having hearings and live witnesses he said you know you want witnesses okay they wanted to have richard nixon's counsel in the room all the time he said okay so we, what, what the chair of the committee understood was let's get all of the minor disagreements out of the way so that the Republicans have to focus on the facts. They couldn't get mad at me because I didn't give them witnesses. They couldn't get mad at me because I didn't let Nixon's counsel write briefs. They couldn't get mad at me because of this or that or some other minor thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a very brilliant strategy and but that was not followed in these impeachments there was a republican council there was a democratic council I, I don't know whether it would have made any difference but i'm just saying those things they're small small things they're symbolic things but they may also have helped to calm everybody down and in fact the articles of impeachment were written by three southern democrats and three moderate Republicans. The staff had written the first draft. They said, okay, well, you want us to vote for impeachment? We're writing it. And they threw that out. And they wrote their own article. So it's, this gives you a sense of how uh, people in the end, when, when taught the facts, like kindergarten kids, uh, and not treated in a very part, and treated in a partisan way, treated respectfully, how we were able to come together. That was really important. I mean, I, I think if you'd asked at the beginning, were you going to let Republicans write the articles of impeachment, people would have said, are you out of your mind? I have to push back on this because you're talking about a party in the last few years that yes. would look at a video of an insurrection and say, those are t tourists. You have Kevin McCarthy, right. who when given the opportunity to put people on the committee and make them impeachment managers, chose people, election deniers like Jim Jordan. There was no way that Republicans would come to that table the way you suggest I, I rationally. You know, I, I'm not, I, I wasn't there. I can just say that Nixon had his fierce defenders. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. fierce. When when seven other Republicans and the Southern Democrats voted for impeachment, they were all for Nixon. And it wasn't until the smoking gun tape came out mm-hmm. where you heard Nixon's own voice saying, you know, you've got to call the FBI, the CIA and get the FBI to get them to stop the FBI from doing their investigation that they that they agreed. So I, I'm not saying that this would have worked now. I didn't say that. I just pointed to the differences. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they would have made any difference. Yeah. I think w- what you describe is an ability for Republicans back then to say, and look, and, and it was Democrats too. I mean, the Democrats came from very Republican districts. Some of them, Democrats had to do that too. The main difference was that partisanship stops at the borders, right? That era, people were ultimately faced with that decision of country over party, and they made the right choice because deep down they had a core, they had integrity. Today. You see what's happening with the Republican Party choosing Russia over Ukraine in their rhetoric. Like, maybe I'm just too skeptical, but it just seems like that's the climate we're living in today. But it doesn't doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try because the signals are not just to the members of the committee. When you have a Republican council, the Democrats pick a Republican council. That's a signal to the country about how they are going to be fair. So I'm not saying this would have effect, affected or changed anyone's mind, but it was it was a different era. And you also didn't have money. I think money is and the huge amounts that are involved in and getting elected to Congress. Has, and the money has influenced the kinds of people who are running and the kinds of people who get elected. Well, we definitely agree that things could be better. That's that's for sure. <laughs> so I want to ask you about a few things that are very topical. For example, the Fox Dominion settlement. What's your take on that? Well, I'm a lawyer and I can understand why uh, Dominion settled the cases they did. Um, Does it achieve the goal? The end talk goal? To their, but, the, but the goal of, of a private litigant is very different. I from knew the you were going to say that. But is it, a, so is it really about it. money? Is it? Should they have gotten that appointment? Well, listen, first of all, they got a lot. They had a judge who made a ruling that Fox News lied. Right. Which they admitted to in their own statement. The judge said there was crystal clear. There wasn't one thing that they said about Dominion that was true. That's pretty good. Uh, But I I mean, of course, I'm disappointed. It would have been great to have uh, more information come out. But the Mm -hmm. fact of the matter that there was a this was a huge expose of the dishonesty of Fox News and its top people. So, yes, of course, more could have come out. And yes, of course, I would have liked to see it, but it didn't happen. And there, but there are going to be several other lawsuits and who knows what's going to come out in those suits. Right. I want to but ask you about that in one second. The real question is, the real question is, what is Congress doing about dishonest television? What is Congress doing about dishonest media? That, that that's it's the same question that I asked before. What is Congress doing about the Supreme Court? So you can't just put this blame on the litigants here. Dominion did a great job of uncovering mm-hmm. the garbage that was going on at Fox News. You got to put some of the blame on Congress. So if you were in Congress right now, had you won back in the fall, what would be the bill you would put forward to? Con- the bill. The first thing I would have done would have been to call for an investigation the minute I got elected of Clarence Thomas. 
No, I mean, Which with I the media, done. the point you were making about the media. Oh, well, you asked the first thing I would do. That was been my first objective. <laughs> okay. Because mm-hmm. we have to deal with a Supreme Court that's going to affect all of right. our lives. I'm going to ask you about right. Clarence Thomas in a second. But I'm just curious to know, what would your approach have been to have the have Congress Well, we used to have a media? fair, you know, we used to have a fairness requirement mm-hmm. in, in uh, television. That's gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you have to start looking at that because- the disinformation, I mean, TV has become really an entertainment. Some people think they're really getting the news from it, but they're not. And, and I don't know how you police it, but I think we have to go back to some of the things that did work 40, 50, 60 years ago. Does the Dominion settlement move the needle in the way that the non-lawyers wanted to in terms of reining in Fox at all? the impact it might have on OAN and Newsmax. Is there some benefit yeah, to that in the way that liberals yeah, want? I, well, I think they got, I think there, I saw an article in the paper the other day, which showed that a few of the TV stations, OAN, Newsmax, and even Fox have declined to have certain people on, mm-hmm. have changed some of the things they've done. So yeah, I think, and and as these as these verdicts continue, because uh, we're going to see some other cases, uh, these companies can't afford. Maybe Fox can afford several billion dollar um, verdicts, but they can't keep doing that. And I think what this has shown is that the defamation laws are are pretty strong and uh, create a real disincentive for lying. Thank I don't know how well it'll work, but let's just see. This is settlement in a real material way, benefit Smartmatic in their $2.7 billion suit? I don't know anything about their case, but obviously it should give them some heart, but mm-hmm. we haven't seen jury would do yet. Right. Another subject which is near and dear to your heart, the war on women, the culture wars, abortion, all that we've seen since the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the abortion pill cases that are pending, as you referred to before, it just seems like it's out of control. Like Republicans don't know what to do with themselves besides attack this group, attack this group, control this group, control that body, control this body part. This is not what they ran on, but yet, and it's probably why DeSantis is- Oh, it is what, excuse me, it is what Trump ran on. Trump ran on racism and misogyny. Let's be real about that. I 1 million percent agree with you, but I mean like, no, they, when I say, I mean like when they're standing on TV and they're- you know, at rallies, they're talking about crime and the border and bringing down inflation. Those were the things they ran on. You and I both know what they really ran on, but the voters didn't elect them for a lot of this stuff. No one gives a they, shit the about voters trans. elected Trump for his racism and his misogyny and his bigotry and his crudeness, his vulgarity, Trump. and his stupidity. Trump. Um, well, he's their leader now. He set this example before well, him. Sometimes, you know, one or two people, three, four people would make comments, but it wasn't coming from the leader of the party. He made it legitimate. Of course he did. To use racism and misogyny in our in our discourse, in our policies and, and so forth. Of course, this all started with Ronald Reagan when he when he was elected and then uh, with the support of the evangelical movement and Jerry Falwell and the and the rest. So we're we're living with that. They uh, set up you uh, ayatollahs, our own ayatollahs in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We're going to be police with, of morality and uh, women and race 
So, so we're living with that, and we've got to get, we've got to end that. Yeah, I was just uh, merely talking about the, the midterms last fall and the flipping of the house. I don't think the Republican electorate gave them control of the house to have Jim Jordan in New York on a field trip investigating Alvin Bragg, or 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 making sure that kitty litter doesn't exist in school bathrooms. Like, I just feel like that's why you know you're seeing DeSantis cratering in the polls. His star is fading. There's talk about him not even running. I don't think he's going to run. He's talking about shit Republicans don't care about. The rest of the country doesn't care about. I'm sorry. I really disagree with you. I think racism and bigotry and misogyny are really at the heart and deep down uh, at the heart of and at the base of what uh, the the most extreme base is and which is running the Republican Party. And it is why uh, Trump is revered, because he says things that no one else has the courage, used to have the courage to say out loud, racist, misogynistic mm-hmm. things, bigoted things. Yeah. No, I, and that's I agree why they admire on, him and love him. I do agree with you on Trump. But, but, the, he's, this, but he's setting the tone for the whole party. That's the problem. Yes, but the, Even the, the McConnell of the country get, doesn't agree with the Republicans or Trump on abortion, I on know, the pill, but that's on because trans the Democrats, and gay rights. All right, let, let's go back. This is because the Democrats didn't pay attention to the mechanics of of power and control. They let the Republicans take over the state legislatures. They let the Republicans nominate these people into into the Supreme Court. They didn't investigate them. They sat back and did nothing. And here we are. Well, some of the Democrats, uh, grassroots, are taking, are, are making a difference. Look at what just happened in Wisconsin. In Kansas. And, well, yeah, but in Wisconsin, they won an election sure. in Wisconsin. Against the Republicans. And in Wisconsin, Kansas, nobody was paying see, attention but the people. But that's my point. Montana. But you have to get organized. Mm-hmm. You cannot let this happen on its own because the forces of uh, bigotry will, you know, are pretty powerful and they're financed. Yeah. So what you need grassroots efforts all over the country, which weren't happening before. You are. Nobody, you know, the Democrats in Washington couldn't pay, couldn't be bothered to pay attention to what was happening on the state level and local level around mm-hmm. the country the price for it. Yeah, no, I totally agree with the point you just made. And I do want, for the record, to say I agree with you on Trump and racism. I say it all the time. I've had people say to me, oh, no, there's normal people who are just feeling economically challenged. They, No, people voted for Trump and are Trump supporters. It's just nothing except race and bigotry, period. But my point is there's a reason why Kevin McCarthy picked up flipped a house with four or five seats and not the 40 or 50 or 60 that everyone had predicted. There's a reason why Kansas knocked down that amendment. There's a reason why Wisconsin flipped. There's a reason why Michigan flipped. There's a reason why Democrats won Georgia and put a Jew and a black man in the Senate. There's a reason why Arizona flipped. All of that is because the bulk of the American people don't buy their bullshit. And that's why they keep losing. They've lost almost everything in the last six years. With the exception of the House They've lost every election, every special election, every amendment. Their message isn't resonating with most people. We see Well, that's that. right. But they're resonating with enough and they have organized enough and they've financed these elections. That's and we the have point. all dark but money right in there. So so what and what's happened is that for too long the Democrats just didn't pay attention. Yep. I agree. I agree what was with going that. On in the state capitals. And that was really wrong. So and, and we pay a price for it. And and Yes, there are many Americans who can't, you, you know, don't 
can't stomach the Republicans, but some of them aren't voting because they don't think that that Democrats are going to make a difference. Right. We've got to, to energize people and we have to fight this huge effort mm-hmm. to repress the vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, that's really the horror. And, you know, mm-hmm. it would be a lot different if Republicans didn't try to suppress the vote, which they are. Mm-hmm. That's what the party is. They, they can't they don't trust democracy. So getting back to your favorite person, Clarence Thomas, um, he just stays on the court and he does whatever he wants and gives his middle finger to everybody and nobody cares. No one remembers Anita Hill. Nobody remembers any of this stuff. And that's just the the court just spirals down the toilet bowl. That's what happens. Yeah, that's where we are. We have an illegitimate court. I mean, that's what's so horrifying. We have an illegitimate court making decisions over the lives of millions of, of the American people, millions of the American people. And that's wrong. And the Democrats need to stand up about this. Oh, yeah, we're going to wait for John Roberts to do something. Really? <laughs> really? Well, if the fact Worse, is, they're, they're waiting not for Kavanaugh to do something. That's what I hear now. It's like Kavanaugh is going to vote with Roberts and they'll have a oh, five. Yeah, right. four, like This is the delusion of the Democrat uh, electorate. Right. We have to. Yeah. We have to start doing what what we have the power to do. There will not be any legislation mm-hmm. to impose a judicial uh, code of ethics on the mm-hmm. on the Supreme Court. It will not happen because the Republicans in the House will stop it. But the senators have the power of investigation and the power of exposure and the power to get uh, into what ha- what's been going on in the court. They haven't used it. They mm-hmm. haven't used it. I mean, and that's what's disgraceful. What you see with Clarence Thomas now is what is it called? Pay to play. Mm-hmm. Clarence Thomas knows that if he votes the way he votes, he gets free trips. Mm-hmm. He gets to go to Indonesia on the scuba diving trips. He gets free vacations in the summer. He gets the use of a private plane. And if he stops voting that way, all of that ends. We know that. It's obvious he's being paid off right in front of our eyes. How Stupid can we be to do nothing about it? So if Democrats that, had the ability, it, should they stack the court? They don't have the ability no, I'm to saying stack if, the court. If they now. should someday have the ability to do Look, if, if they did an, a real investigation of Clarence Thomas and not only his the pay to play, the pay of his, his being paid off, but also how he lied when he came to the Senate and got confirmed and said, oh, I never harassed anybody. Oh, no, I never looked at pornography. Oh, no, no, none of that is true. Okay, if they looked at that and showed that he was a liar, as he, I believe him to be, uh, based on the evidence I've seen, and if he's, if he's turned out to be uh, someone who's not told the truth, he may be forced to resign by public opinion. So let's try to do what we have the power to do instead of saying we can't do anything. And giving someone else a responsibility. And that's the problem, I think, with the Democratic Party at this point. It's just tolerating uh, Thomas on the court and uh, others on the court who got there because it weren't proper investigations or because McConnell stopped the, the clock from running. So Democrats are too nice. They don't have to play hardball. I don't know if that's an adjective I would use, but they're not doing what they need to do, in my opinion. That's why I ran for Congress. And that's what I think that our representatives should be doing, which is demanding the Senate mm-hmm. to act. 
So another subject, which I know is near and dear to your heart, and I, I bring this up as a Jew myself, and I'm sitting here in a studio with two other Jews, my co-producer and engineer and associate producer. So anti-Semitism, what's happening? We went from never again to what the fuck? I mean, it just seems like it's crazy town right now. Well, I mean, I think what's happened is, well, I, I, I don't, that's a very deep question because- We've lived with anti-Semitism, sadly, for millennia. That means thousands of years. Jews have been slaughtered and attacked for thousands of years based on ignorance and prejudice and so forth. I, I, I mean, my mom's family fled pogroms in Russia. They were refugees and uh, sought sanctuary here. When I was growing up, I got beaten up, beaten up on the way to Hebrew school. Uh, there were big signs that said restricted, no no Jews, no blacks, no dogs allowed. I saw them, big signs, with my own eyes, in my lifetime. There were quotas on Jews going into schools. There were on Jews in, uh, in certain banking firms, in certain law firms. That A lot of that has ended. This country I saw was really on, you know, the right track. It felt that way. And then for the... Right. It certainly felt that way. Felt that way also in terms of, of racial strides. And then we had Charlottesville. And then you had Donald Trump saying that the people who said Jews will not replace us and were wearing Nazi and had Nazi insignia and were anti-black and racist. When he said there are good people on both sides, fine people, I'm sorry, I don't want to misquote him, fine people on both sides. That gave license to every bigot in this country, whatever they were bigoted about. Some are bigoted about Native Americans, some are bigoted about Asians, some are bigoted about Jews, some well, are bigoted he, he covered about them all. Blacks, some are bigoted about all of those things. He gave them license to do that mm. and to act that way. And, and also, he stopped the FBI from looking into uh, some of these organizations, the right-wing uh, organizations that were virulently anti-Semitic and, and violent. And so we lost a lot of ground and uh, we need to recapture it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think the Republicans want to defund the FBI, that God help, God forbid that they should be looking at these right-wing militias, at these right-wing groups uh, that are racist, anti-Semitic, anti-democratic, and poisoning our society. You know, when I, when I was... Growing up, you hear never again. You you think about the Holocaust and you think about how could Germany, how could the people, how could that have all happened? And then all of a sudden you get into 2015, 16, and you start to see Trump and what he's doing and what he's saying and how he's acting. And you see the people rallying around him and you start to understand how 1929 Germany, you know, how Hitler could have fomented all that anger and hatred and scapegoating. Like, you can't say never again anymore because you could see how that could happen again. You could see it. Right. Well, and that goes back to the the matter we discussed much earlier, which is the lies on TV. One of the examples you can show of how people get uh, persuaded is in the Soviet, in Russia now, most of the people seem to support Putin mm -hmm. and they believe his lies about Ukraine because he has total control over the media. And that's something that has to be looked at here. The disinformation, 
the lying. I mean, the, the libel laws, the defamation laws can go some way to doing this, but but not enough. And uh, that's something that has to be part of our agenda. The so, Supreme Court and lies on TV. <laughs> in our final couple of minutes, I want to ask you about uh, Trump. Are we going to see this man behind bars someday? Are we going to see him convicted? Where is he going to be convicted? Is Georgia the place? Is Is Jack Smith and his investigation is going to be the place. Is it going to be all of them? Is he going to be indicted on all of these things and convicted on all these things? I mean, my own view is that it took the Justice Department a long time to focus the right way on mm -hmm. this. It wasn't really until uh, sometime in 22, I think, or maybe 21, they started looking at the false electors issue. That was present from the beginning. So, uh, you know, I think... It, 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 they weren't doing it, in my opinion, in, a, in an aggressive enough way. Yes, they were very aggressive about the attack on the Capitol itself. They've now prosecuted and arrested, I don't know, almost a thousand people, maybe more. Mm -hmm. That was an amazing job, probably huge, but they still haven't gone as far as they need to go. I hope that there will be. I mean, the evidence seems to me to be overwhelming. I was a former prosecutor. I put, you know, I mean, I was dealing with crime when there really was crime in New York in a very serious way. I mean, we, we had 900 murders in Brooklyn alone when I was DA. So it was a different time. But, you know, we we have to make sure that, the, that there's a standard of justice in this country and that people who are powerful, even if they're former presidents, are held accountable. I mean, you know, the idea that the country will fall apart if we prosecute a president, first of all, the framers of the Constitution intended that to happen. It's there explicitly in the Constitution. And secondly, Nixon himself was named by the grand jury as an unindicted co-conspirator. Mm -hmm. And the country didn't fall apart. We've had assassinations and the country didn't fall apart. That's the so, strength of uh, our democracy. Right. But that's what's also at stake now. Where's our democracy going to be? The racism is, is part of the attack on our basic democracy. This, if we don't respect everybody, let people have their points of view heard, have the truth come out, um, then who knows what's going to happen to us. Well, that's a great... Don't worry about it. That's a great point to end on. Optimism, positivity, and hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we've made it for, you know, several hundred years. We're still here, uh, right? We're still here. Well, and, Elizabeth, uh, thank you so much. You've been very you. generous with your time. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I'm a Watergate geek, so <laughs> this is a big thrill. I, I've now I, I, I've spoken to you, and I and I once passed Carl Bernstein sitting outside a cafe, and I, I was like, all right, you got to go say hi. So I, I've met you and Carl Bernstein. <laughs> so I, my bucket list is getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. <laughs> Who else do you have to talk to, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Woodward would be thank nice you so too. Much. So yes, that'll happen. Yes. Well, thanks again, and I hope you'll come back. Thank at some you. Point. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That's episode 64. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Click at Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Elizabeth Holtzman. 
So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.